0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Brett Kroll and is part three of our Epiphany 2016 series. Today at Church of the Resurrection, we celebrate Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is an annual Sunday that we set aside towards the end of January every year in which we remember the call to protect and to defend life. So today's sermon... Is about abortion and the fight for life. But before we, we get into it, I, I want to take a moment to kind of sidestep and, and clear the ground a little bit because oftentimes when we hear people talk about abortion, they might say something like, it is the social justice issue of our day. And some of you in here might get a little rankled by that or might think, well, why? Do we always or only talk about this? Aren't there other issues as well that are important? What about racial reconciliation or closing the gap between rich and poor? What about immigration? What about the environment? What about these other things? And just to speak to that for a moment and say, as Christians, whenever we can be, we love to be both and rather than either or. To say, well, if we can say yes to that and to that and to that, we will. And yes, we want Christians working at racial reconciliation. Yes, we want Christians working to close the gap between rich and poor. Yes, we want Christians working on immigration and the environment and all of these issues. And yes, we want Christians promoting and fighting to protect life at every stage. And it's good to remember the image that Paul gives us of the body of Christ, saying some's a hand, some are ears, and eyes or mouth, and some's a foot. But whatever you are, we all need each other, and so we should rejoice. Victory in one sector is, is victory in another. And it's true, you might know this, that the abortion disproportionately affects those in the black community, the Hispanic community, and those of lower income brackets in our society. And so to be pro-life, you actually are rooting for and really hoping that those who are working in racial reconciliation and in poverty, that they're going to succeed. Because the more they do, the more abortions are going to go down, and vice versa. Because they're all connected. It's all about preserving and promoting the dignity of human life. And for Christians, the starting point in the fight for life is always the value of life, and something that we call the Imago Dei. It's a Latin phrase that means the image of God. And it's the idea that because we are created by God, that He is the author of our life, that means life and the power of death belong to Him and Him alone in a special way. We do not hold the power of life and death. But also, being created in the image of God has bestowed upon every human being an inherent dignity, And an unfathomable value. And it begins right away in chapter 1 of Genesis. The story of creation, which if you read it carefully, you see very clearly that at the end, humankind is presented as the pinnacle of creation. God has created all other things and at last he says, now let us make mankind in our own image. And so he makes them male and female in his own image. He makes them after the image and likeness of God. Something that no other creature has. And there are many other examples from the Bible that could speak to the dignity and value of human life. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to fast forward to, to the crowning example, which is the incarnation in which God himself, the son of God has become one of us. He's become human. And by doing so, he elevates human nature and gives to all humans a dignity and a glory that we did not have even in the garden before we sinned. It actually goes beyond the glory of the garden. And in a remarkable way, because God has become one of us, it gives us a dignity and a value beyond even that of the angels. Truly remarkable, because angels are beings of greater power, of immortal life, and yet God did not become an angel. And he did not become a kangaroo or a hippopotamus hippopotamus or sycamore tree either. He became a human. And because God became and still is a human person, that means for you to be a human person is really quite an astonishing thing. And for you to sit next to a human person is quite an astonishing thing. And for you to carry a human person in your human person. It's quite an astonishing thing. Made in the image of God. But now most of us in this room probably agree with that. We'd say, well, yeah, I'm I'm pro-life and I believe we're all made in the image of God. And some might actually be working harder to understand how could anybody support abortion? How could anybody ever have an abortion? So I'd like to speak to that for a minute. Because it doesn't take long, if you think about it, to see how it, it does in fact make a lot of sense to a lot of well-intentioned and good-meaning people. We I mean, all know the phrase, right? Walk a mile in a man's shoes before you judge him, because then you're a mile away and hey, you got his shoes. <laughs> Alright, little jack candy for Sunday morning. But seriously, we must remember that those who support abortion are not our enemies. Paul says we do not struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against the spiritual forces. The only enemy of the human race is the enemy, the evil one who seeks to lie, corrupt, and distort God's creatures. That is our enemy. And in fact, as Christians, we are called to love above and beyond precisely those who oppose us. In this case, those who support abortion. And now if we do put ourselves in the shoes of a young woman, And a young man who are facing a crisis pregnancy, it was unintended, most likely they're they're not married, what is going through their minds? What is going through her mind as she's walking into the abortion clinic? Likely she's not chanting, my body, my choice, my body, my choice. At that moment, the political debate and the philosophical debate means nothing to her. She's afraid and she's freaking out and she has no idea... Where's the father of this child? Where's he at in this? I don't know. Three times out of four, if a couple is pregnant and they're not married, that's the end of the relationship. Which means that almost 75% of the time, this young woman is now frightened, scared, perhaps surprised. We were I thought we were being careful. I thought I was on the pill. How did this happen? Ashamed and all alone. Facing the biggest life change that there ever could be becoming a parent. No change is greater, and she's facing that all alone. She's afraid. Those of you who have children, just remember what was it like to have your first pregnancy. You're afraid. You're making a lot of decisions. Can you imagine doing that all alone? It doesn't take long if we sit in this train of thought for a while to realize, yeah, people would want an escape. Or in other cases, you have a married couple who perhaps they have a stable relationship, perhaps they have financial stability, but the doctor has just told them, your child will be severely disabled and you will be caring for that child for the rest of your life and their life. How does that news hit home to them? Like that young woman or that young man uh, in the other scenario I described, all of a sudden they're thinking, wow, my my plans, my life, things that I wanted to do, and all of a sudden, to give that away. And they're asking themselves, if I go through with this, if we go through with this, does that mean we basically lose our lives? I mean, I know we, we probably won't literally die, but we're going to lose our lives if we carry this child. When, uh, when we were pregnant with my... T- well, Julie was pregnant. Uh, when Julie was pregnant with the twins... About halfway through that pregnancy, we had a doctor's appointment in which the doctor said they're carrying in a way that is high risk. There's a greater risk they might die. And there's an outside chance that they might have a, a deprivation of oxygen, which would lead to being born severely disabled. And that news rocked me. It sent me reeling. And part of what rocked me about it even though abortion never crossed our minds, that was not an option, yet I was I was disturbed. I was shocked by the thoughts that were going through my mind. I won't even repeat them here. I was afraid. And I was trying to figure out what would my life look like if that happened. And that was not even a diagnosis. That was just the possibility of a diagnosis. And so I can understand the fear that somebody might have sitting in that situation trying to contemplate, how is this going to change my life? I don't know if I can handle this. And if you're not a believer and you don't have the value, the inherent value of human life because you believe in a God who is a creator and you don't have the witness of the gospel, the comfort and also the support of the church, it makes a lot of sense why well-meaning people could support abortion. And why neutral parties would say, yeah, I, I actually don't think abortion is right, but I would never force that on another woman because I don't want to put her in that prison. It makes sense why people would think that way. Fear. And I was reading uh, research just the other day that said 27% of women who have abortions are Catholic are Protestant, and even 10% are women who claim to be born-again evangelical Christians. What does that tell me? That tells me they're afraid. So what does the gospel say in light of that fear? What would Jesus say? Well, the gospel does two things. First, it comforts, and then it corrects. So we're going to talk about how does the gospel comfort and then correct. What would Jesus say? How does he speak into the situation? Well, I think the first thing that Jesus would say is something that is all throughout the scriptures, a phrase that appears almost any time God or an angel speaks, and then many other times besides. In our gospel reading this morning, it showed up three times. Do not fear or do not be afraid. Somebody once told me that the phrase do not be afraid occurs 365 times in the Bible. Once for every day of the year. Because God must have known there's plenty in this world to make us afraid. And he says, do not be afraid. Remember the gospel reading today. If I care about the birds and the lilies, I can care about you. I have enough, and if you call upon my name, and if you walk with me, I will take care of your needs. It won't be easy, but I will care for you. Your food and your clothes, you will have. Jesus taught, and he said, Your Father in heaven knows what you need, He is able to provide. Do not be afraid. I think to someone who is asking the question, if I go through with having this child, do I lose my life? I think Jesus would say, I'm not going to tell you that you won't lose your life. In fact, in a way, you will lose your life. But what Jesus would say is, that is how you begin to live. He would say to lose your life for my sake, to lose your life for another, to give until it hurts, to love somebody more than you love yourself and to lay down your dreams and your ambitions and everything that you, that is how you begin to truly live and to truly love. And that is a lesson that that a career and work and all of your goals in life can never teach you and cannot give you. What is true love? And I think Jesus would say, I see your heart. You want to experience love. Let me show you what it looks like. And the gospel transforms and says, I'm, not going to tell you, you won't lose your life, but I am going to tell you, if you lose your life, you gain your life. And if you seek to protect and hold on to your life, that's when you lose your life. And I think Jesus would say to us through the scripture morning, uh, the the, uh, old Testament lesson this morning in Hosea, I'm not going to deal much with this passage, just a few words, but like a laser beam, I think they speak of the heart of God on this issue. So turn in your bulletin into Hosea. Just the last half of the last verse. Let me give you a little bit of the background. Hosea was a prophet of Israel that was given a very unusual task. God said to him, Hosea, you are going to illustrate and live out my love to an unfaithful people, my faithful love to unfaithful Israel. So go marry an unfaithful woman, marry an adulteress, And love her. So Hosea does. He marries a woman who is unfaithful to him. She has children. And if you read the story closely, you, you find out they're not his. They're the children of adultery. And that's why in verse 23, no mercy and not my people are capitalized because those are in fact the names of the children. How's that for introducing yourself at a party? Hey, uh, how you doing? My name's no mercy and that's my brother over there, not my people. And yet what God does in this passage is he takes that no mercy, not my people, and he completely transforms it and turns it on his head on its head. And he says to the one who is called no mercy, I will have mercy. And to those who are not my people, I will say you are my people. And he will say You are my God. And in the context of our conversation this morning, that means God is the one who says to the unwanted, you are wanted. You are wanted. And this is the story of our salvation. We were the unwanted ones whom God said, no, I don't want you to remain unwanted. I will come after you and make you wanted by taking your place, taking the place of the unwanted ones, and I will rescue you. Now, here's the difference. An unborn child has done nothing right or wrong one way or the other to deserve being wanted or unwanted. You and I, and all of the human race, born, we have chosen. By our own sin and rebellion, we said, no, I don't want to be wanted by God. I want to be unwanted. And God, in His grace and His mercy, said, no, but I will say to those who are unwanted, you are wanted. And how does He do that? By sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to step into the place of the unwanted ones. He becomes the unwanted one. He comes to his people and his own people, the ones who are supposed to receive him, reject him. They receive him not. Sounds a little bit like abortion. The ones who are supposed to receive him reject him. And at the end of his life, he is labeled by the authorities unwanted. And what is the penalty for being unwanted? We will kill you. And it strikes me. That Jesus' death on the cross bears an amazing resemblance to the fate of a victim of abortion. Jesus goes to the cross voiceless. He does not speak up to defend himself. He goes to the cross unjustly. The authorities said there's no reason to kill him. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he's unjustly killed and murdered. And last, his body is pierced. And in the language of Isaiah... He is crushed for our sins. Jesus is voiceless, unjustly killed, his body pierced and crushed. Why did he do that? Why did he take the place of the unwanted ones? So that he could say to those who are unwanted, you are wanted. Who did he do that for? He did that for you. He did that for me. And he also did that for the abortionist, He did that for a mother who's had an abortion, for a father who has stood by complicit in the killing of his own child. He did that for them so that he could say wanted to those who are unwanted. This is the gospel of God. This is God who gives value and places value on those who had no value before. And we as a church and we as Christians are at our best when we do the same thing. One of my favorite stories from church history was back to uh, the Roman times. For the first couple centuries of of Roman rule, Christians were not liked. We were marginalized, we were persecuted, and there was a label given to Christians called misanthropoi, which translated means haters of men. They didn't like us because we didn't like the gladiator fights because we said people shouldn't be killing people for sport, and especially when a lot of the people being killed are our people. And they also didn't like the theater, because theater was basically live pornography. They said, that's not good. And these were cherished things that the Romans loved. For this, For these and other reasons, the Romans did not like the Christians, and they called them haters. Haters of men. What changed public opinion for the Romans? In the early hours of the morning... It was customary for women deaconesses to troll about in the alleyways and in the hill country listening for the cries of babies. Because it was also customary for Roman families, if they did not want to keep a baby, it was legal and it was custom to just put that baby out to die in the elements or be killed by wild animals. And the Christians said, no. That unwanted child, we want that child. And if a woman deacon found a child abandoned, she would take that child as her own and raise it and love the child that was not her own. Just like Hosea loved the children who were not his own. And after enough of this, the Romans finally said, well, I guess we can't really call them haters of men, can we? And you, Church of the Resurrection, you gave over twice the previous record for last year's Good Friday gift to the work in Nigeria and to Mama Gloria and the, well, she wouldn't call it an orphanage, to her home, because what she had done, we see the same work at work in her, where she said to the 50 Street children, come into my house, I will take care of you, and don't anybody call them orphans, because they have a father and they have a mother. Now, it's the bishop and me. And we see that, and we say, that's Jesus. Jesus. That's what Jesus looks like, and so we give generously, we give joyfully. And we recognize, yes, that's what the church is supposed to do. Because if God says, I will comfort you, do not be afraid. He also says, and I give you the church, and I've instructed the church, carry one another's burdens. And if you walk with them, they will walk with you, and they will help you carry your load. So the gospel comforts. But the gospel also corrects. If the gospel comforts, it also corrects. And if we've journeyed for a little while trying to imagine the plight of those who are experiencing an unwanted and a crisis pregnancy, we also will say as Christians, yet there's another side. We care about the woman, but we also care about that child. And because that child is made in the image of God, Yes, the alternatives to abortion are difficult. It is hard to make a plan for adoption. There's grief involved. It's difficult to parent a child when you weren't planning on it and you don't feel like you have all the means you need. That's hard. It's difficult. It's a trial. And yet, those are the only two options. The church says very clearly. And this is why Christians, until the Lord returns, are going to have the same position. And we'll say this over and over and over and over and over, gently over and over, with love over and over, that it is not okay and it is never okay to take an innocent life. And there's another side to this equation. And we value both the woman and the father and all those connected to the pregnancy, and we value the life of that unborn child. And we will say wanted to the one who is not wanted. So the pro-choice agenda and the pro-choice movement works very hard to make this about women's rights. Because understandably, if you think about it from that side, you might be compelled to say, yeah, I I think abortion's wrong, but I wouldn't want to force, you know, either adoption or or parenting on anybody who wasn't ready. And that's where the, the gospel has to correct and say, it is a life and that ends the debate. So the gospel corrects. And in order to make this shift to it being primarily about women and women's rights, oftentimes the language that is used will attempt to dehumanize the unborn child, to try to get us to feel or think like it's not human in the way that the rest of us are human, that there's some other category or kind of human that is not what you and I are, and that can justify us treating this category of humans differently. What's really dangerous about this is that's exactly the same logic and reasoning that upheld slavery in this country. The Dred Scott uh, Supreme Court decision, which happened prior to the Civil War, that was a uh, ruling by the Supreme Court that said slavery is okay. And the language of that... Uh, of that case said, yes, African-Americans are human, but they're not fully human in the way that you and I are, and they don't have full legal rights. That's the same language that is being used against unborn children. They're not human like the rest of us. And that same logic and that same reasoning was used in Nazi Germany to say the Jews, well, yes, they're humans, but they're not people like the rest of us are people. And that's how a whole nation could be brainwashed into thinking, yes, we can kill them. And we're living in a Holocaust that's been going on for four decades. Abortion in this country, this kind of gets back to the the question of why this issue more than any other. Why do we talk about this more than any other? And the answer is the sheer magnitude. Because somewhere between a million to a million and a half abortions occur every year and have since Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. Amounting to more than 55 million abortions. That's the same death rate that was in the Nazi concentration camps. A little over a million Jews every year of the Holocaust. And it's happening right now in our country. And if you get a little squeamish about the fact that we have people who stand outside abortion clinics to pray and to talk to any women who might be having second thoughts. Let me help you and just put it in a little bit perspective. If anybody who stood outside the Nazi gas chambers to pray and to talk to any soldiers who maybe had second thoughts, today they would be called heroes. The gospel corrects as well as comforts. And so as a church, what do we do? Because again, many of you might be sitting here thinking, yes, I I believe all the things you're saying. Yes, I'm pro-life, but I'm not going to fly to Washington every year and I I don't really think that me and the five guys and my bachelor pad should adopt a kid. That doesn't seem like the right way to go about this. And what I'd really love to uh, put before us here this morning is to understand there are so many ways to be pro-life. Small ways, everyday ways. And as you came in this morning, you received one of these. And if you didn't, you can grab one at the tables in the back. This is an insert. On the back, it's 12 ways to take action. And it can be involved with our replanted ministry, our Sanctity of Life team, Care in your personal life. There are so many ways. I was talking with Jen Ranter, who's the leader of the Replanted Ministry, and she said, I'd love for people to realize it's not all or nothing. You can get involved, whether you're married or not, whether you have um, you know, a desire to adopt or foster, or whether you just want to simply help out. And Replanted is a beautiful ministry that does exactly what we're talking about, ministers to the other side of the equation, helping those who are adopting, who, those who are in foster care, Jen's heart is eventually to be able to care for birth moms and dads who say, you know, we want to keep our baby, but we just need some help to surround them and say, we will walk with you. That's exactly what the church needs to be doing. And our Sanctity of Life team, John and Krista, are going to be up during the announcements to share a little bit more about what are the small ways, the manageable ways that you can get involved and that you can do something to be pro-life. So part of what you need to do today is, is... take this insert home and and pray over is there anything on the back here that that strikes me that kind of hits on my heart and says wow I I think I can do that and and I think the Lord is calling me to do that but I want to finish by giving us two ways that are actually really big ways they have a massive impact and yet they're also very hidden ways to be pro-life that affect every one of us in this room and it's our sexuality and raising children. All right, so first let's talk about sexuality. Let's not forget that the root of this whole issue is not that people are fans of abortion. I mean, you talk to most people who are pro-choice, they don't like abortions. They're not, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, we should really promote abortion because that's a great human experience that everybody should have. That's not where they're coming from. They see it as, as a last resort option, lesser of two evils, Nobody likes abortion. So then we say, how did we get to this place where we have this uh, incredible controversy where we're all saying, yeah, nobody likes abortion? How did we get here? Because further back up the chain of events, our culture said we want the right to do whatever we want with our bodies sexually. And that's what got us to where we are today. Never forget that sex is at the root of the abortion and a wrong and twisted and distorted view. And for decades now, our country has been trying so hard to push apart sex and babies and to try to create this magical fantasy world where you can have whatever sexual experiences you want without having to tie it to the responsibility that goes with it. The responsibility, yes, to that other person that you're engaging in sexual activity with. And definitely, if a child is born of that union, you have a responsibility to that child. And we're trying so hard with the promotion of birth control to separate out those two. And so if you are a Christian saying, I choose chastity. You know what? I'm pro-choice when it comes to sexuality. I believe I have a choice. Not to be having sex. Not to like clamor for my rights and say, I have the right to do whatever I want with my body. It's my body. But to say, my body is not my own. My body belongs to God first and to my spouse second. And if I'm not married, even if I'm dating and engaged but not yet married, that means there's no sex and no sexual activity. And that silent witness, hidden, yet it is so massive. Because our world needs to know that yes, it is possible. It's not easy, but it is possible to be chaste, to strive for sexual purity. And I can say a lot about this, but to also say, and in the end, that is absolutely what is best for us. God knew what he was doing when he put the parameters around sexuality. So for us, in whatever facet of life we are in, to strive for sexual purity and chastity and to uphold the biblical view of sexuality is one more way that we can be pro-life every day in a very massive, though hidden way. The second way is raising our children. Do you know why abortions happen? So much of the reason why abortions happen is because you have a father who stepped away, who disengaged, or even worse, pressured to kill his own child. So you have a child who is fatherless. And so if you're a father in here today, when you get home from work, and you're tired, you're exhausted, you're worried. Am I providing enough for my family? Am I I giving them enough time? Bedtime didn't go so well. I lost my temper, and I'm up at night sleepless because of the unruly toddler or the unruly teenager. Just remember this, that without you, your children would be fatherless, and that the greatest contribution you can make to the pro-life movement is to love your children and to raise them well and to love your wife. And this word goes for mothers, too, Without you, your children are homeless. Because the mother is the home. The home is not a building. Mom is home to your children. And without you, your children are homeless. And this word is not for biological fathers and mothers only. Every one of us is called to raise our children. You know the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child? That is still true. And I look out here in this congregation, I see some of you that love my children. And I love when people who are not my children's biological parents, meaning me and Julie, when people who are not us are loving and taking care of my children. Just the other night, John Raines, my good friend, was over. And uh, we were hanging out. The kids were in bed. One of the girls wet the bed. So we were attending to that emergency with two screaming four-and-a-half-year-olds in the middle of the night. And Simon, my one-and-a-half-year-old, all of a sudden woke up and now he was crying and fussing. And John, without doing any, I didn't need to tell him, he just walked in, picked up Simon, and just held him. I love that. And if any of you have had three, uh, three-year-olds three in the 9 a.m. Sunday school, you know what I'm thinking, right? We need t-shirts that say I heart Jake Schlossberg. I love it when the church loves my children and I know that they need it. So in what ways can you be pro-life Resurrection, the children of resurrection are our children. Getting to know a child's name, saying hello, helping in the children's ministry, loving the children who are not your own. And the more we do that in here, the easier it's going to be doing that out there. The more we're going to be able to be prepped and ready to say, give us your babies. If you really can't handle them, give them to us. We're practiced at loving children that are not our own. We're practiced at saying to the unwanted, I want you. I pray you'll consider these things, that your heart will be stirred, and that, yes, you'll take a good, long look, prayerful look at this insert and say, is there something we can do? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation.